Hey guys, Mitya here. A bit of a background about me. For years, my main business has been running a digital product agency. And on this new episode of my show, I'm super excited to have someone who I have a lot in common with. Pet runs Impeccable, which is a superb design and development agency right in the heart of Silicon Valley. Please guys, don't be greedy with those like buttons, subscribe buttons, notification bells. This guy deserves it, and so do I. Let's go. Hi, everybody. With me today is Peck Punk Pet, who is the founder of Impeccable. That's an incredible product uh, design and development agency right in the heart of uh, Silicon Valley. Peck, how are you today? Doing great. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Talk to me. Like, how does it feel to run an agency in the heart of Silicon Valley? I know you moved, but we'll get to that later. But yeah. how does it feel? You're in the middle of the most advanced stuff. Is it a great business to have? Is it something people should aspire to? Well, you know, I graduated at the height of the first dot-com boom. So as I was studying computer science, electrical engineering, uh, you know, things like Netscape and Google and Yahoo and PayPal and Hotmail were just starting out and growing um, as I was doing my computer science degree and, and around the graduation. And so I, I was always enamored of tech tech companies. Uh, you know, that was that were my heroes, you know, of the founders of PayPal, uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates, Microsoft, all that stuff. Those, those, those were my kind of heroes. So mm-hmm. um, I, I have lived in Chicago and, and I know that Chicago for the longest time had been trying to have a tech scene. Uh, but compared to Silicon Valley, I mean, it, it was, you know, well, just like there's no other Hollywood other than Hollywood, there's no other place quite like Silicon Valley that produces so many uh, world affecting startups. So um, I, I worked in technology in Chicago for about a decade and a half, but my, I always dreamed, I would say, of wanting to be seeing what that was like. Uh, you know, and I wasn't getting any younger. So around my thirties, I just, you know, my wife and I decided, well, we're not getting any younger. There were some life events that happened and we decided, okay, well, we should just try it. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, if I'm not successful, we can just come back home to Chicago. Um, so Mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of how we thought about it and made the move. Um, cool. Yeah. You started as a design agency, and as far as I understand, your background is more in sort of design. Um, and then you also switched to building the stuff, coding that stuff. How do you compare the two activities? And do you think like agencies should specialize in one or the other, or it should be more universal? Uh, well, you know, that, that's entirely not true. Uh, it, so I Impeccable basically was an the organic transition of me going from freelancer to to having too much work and then having to hire people to help me do it. Um, right. When when I moved to Silicon Valley, my my goal was actually to try to do something more along the lines of, you know, a tech startup. You know, kind of come up with an idea okay. with a co-founder, raise money, you know, and and try to do that. Uh, we. I had a co-founder, tried a couple ideas, didn't go anywhere, lots of failures. We tried at least three main ideas. Uh, and then we also had some side projects on the side that had various uh, 
um, degrees of success. Uh, none of them like financial success. Uh, they didn't work. So long story short, nothing worked in about a year, year and a half. And I went back to consulting, you know, people, uh, I, I was a designer, but I was also a front end engineer, um, you know, mm -hmm. because of my engineering background. So some of my first clients, uh, for example, legal zoom, um, in the Bay area, I, I wouldn't just design actually in the mornings, we would talk about their needs, you know, by the late morning, I would have some wireframes, um, right. and designs. And then by the afternoon, end of the day, I, I could also code it up. So I was sort of a unicorn in that sense to deliver mm -hmm. pretty much everything. Obviously that doesn't scale. Um, cause, uh, there's not a lot of unicorns. You know, there's not a lot of designers who can code and coders who can design, but, um, what, what could scale as a business was like, well, pick one or the other, right? Like, because it's mm -hmm. harder to find unicorns because um, they're busy building their own dreams and building their own startups. Uh, right. So we started just building just the design piece and scaling that. Um, the problem I ran into too was, well, you can have great designs and then you can give it to an engineer or engineers you don't control and then they'll just do whatever they want. So then the client right. will say, hey, I hired you to do this, but here's what I got. It doesn't look like anything you designed. I was like, well, these are your engineers. They don't, I, I, all I can do is give them the designs and if they don't wanna do it, there's not much I can do. So mm -hmm. in order to serve the end goal better, in order to serve my customers better, I had to offer front-end engineering, you know, kind of pixel perfect front-end engineering, right. you know, engineers I can control and whose payroll I can control, whose livelihood I can control, because then I can say, hey, we need it done this way. We need it pixel perfect. I need you to pay attention to detail. Um, right. I, so once we did that, I think the, the service was better. Um, and then once you start doing design and front end, you know, it's like, it's almost the whole cake anyway. So people are like, oh, can you just do the whole thing at some point? So, so we kind of just offered the whole thing. So yeah, it's kind of like the analogy is like, if you only do the cake decoration, but you don't work on the cake at some point, someone's like, oh, can you just give me the whole cake? And yeah. so, you know, they don't want to go around and cobble together different stuff. So that's, that's kind of how it started. Nice. Uh, talk to me about design. I mean, in my experience, and I'm, I have a similar background, in my experience, there is a whole problem around design being subjective. Like many clients don't understand like the difference between design and art, right? So they don't understand between the difference between looks nice and serves the purpose well. Uh, how do you approach this when you work with a client? Yeah, so... We, yes, uh, in, in my mind, yeah, UX design is, is problem solving, is, is not art. And, and yes, visual, visual design, things like mood boards and color palettes, color schemes, font choices of font typography can be subjective, but uh, screen flows, um, UX flows, how things are laid out can have an impact on usability, uh, how easy, you know, what's high friction, low friction in terms of the onboarding flow or the user per flow or accomplishing a task within a design within an application. So design is about solving a problem. And in terms of how I position the work and the work to be done is like, what problem are you trying to solve, right? Hey, I'm trying to include, 
increase user registrations and trying to include increase signups okay so right. so our, our design solves that problem is you know if blue is better than orange you know like like google right like google tests every shade of blue and every you know they they don't care they almost don't care what color it is right if that color performs better they're going to go with that color right. <laughs> it's it's really like to take it to that extreme right like it's not about mm -hmm. what that person hiring you says what color they like it's like what performs mm -hmm. better does that help me achieve the goal so mm -hmm. when when it's too you know touchy feely uh, you kind of lose that um, yeah interesting uh to the previous point if a client wants to do something you consider wrong or stupid or what have you what do you do do you do you do what the client says? Do you fire a client? Do you try to persuade them? What do you do? Because in my experience, that's a typical situation. So from one from one angle, a client comes to you because they think you're a pro in this and they need your expertise. From a different perspective, they might not be you know flexible enough to really listen to what you think is better for them. So how do you handle that? Well, there could be a, a few things going on. One, oftentimes, you know, we we are good at designing software, but we it's rare that we have all the domain knowledge all the time for the industry we're designing for. You know, right. so we're we're not high speed traders, right? Like if somebody wants us to design something around, uh, you know, a stock trading high, you know, for example, just uh, just throwing out random examples. Uh, or you know a law firm or a fintech or whatever we we may or may not or healthcare so we may not have all the information so that's one instead mm -hmm. of like immediately saying oh that's a dumb idea you know I would start asking questions to understand the why you know why do you think this is should be this way what what is informing okay. that decision so start I would start asking questions. Um, if, if I have a very strong opinion because I'm an expert in mobile design and they don't have that, you know, I, I would listen and defer to them around industry questions because they're the industry expert. They know their business more than I do. Um, but in terms of say, for example, mobile design, if they want it done a certain way and I think it's, that's not gonna work at all, um, I, I would probably try to raise it, right? And um, the, sometimes the approach, and it depends on your comfort level, but you might say, you know, I might say, hey, you know, I can do what you want. Like you hired me because of certain reason, uh, because right. you think I know more than you do in, you know, right? because I've built more, designed more mobile apps than they've ever downloaded maybe. <laughs> right. so, so this is why you hired me. Um, mm -hmm. You can choose to listen to me or not. Um, but mm -hmm. here's my feeling, like my advice you, as an advisor, here's my opinion, uh, informed mm -hmm. opinion as an expert. You can mm -hmm. choose to ignore it or you can choose to take it. You know, you, you now have information. I've, I've done my part in giving you that information. Uh, the client ultimately will do what they want to do. Um, you know, and then or you can take the attitude of like, hey, they're paying me. Uh, it's like, maybe this is a question. Do you want me to tell you what I think you should do? Or do you want me to just do what you want me to do? I can do both, you know, <laughs> and, right. and just be like, and maybe they like, 
I think, you know, hey, I'm Steve Jobs. I think I know what's best for, you know, they, if they're super highly opinionated, you might not win that battle, right? And, and I can say, you know, with those type of clients, I can just say, hey, I, I've informed you. It's my duty to inform you and, and mm-hmm. give you, make you aware of the risks. And, and that's all mm-hmm. I can do. Okay. I think that in many cases, clients will actually value that sort of approach because if you feel strongly about something and you proactively express that feeling, they start to really see you as, a, as an authority figure, as an expert in this field. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your work with Nike. Uh, this is a passion brand. This is a passion for many people across the globe. And tell me about like Silicon Valley is the heart of startups. This is a place where people come to start different things. And this is like mostly all about starting small companies, right? Small startups that grew bigger. At the same time, you work with Nike, you work with Google, and you work with huge enterprises. Uh, how do you compare that? Yeah. Well, Nike is actually not located in Silicon Valley, right? They're, they're in Beaverton, right. uh, Oregon. The work with Nike that we do is we uh, help them with their SMS marketing of shoes. So like a global brand in terms of marketing is much more complex, right? They're not, the, one, they market globally. Uh, two, it's multiple channels, right? It's not just retail. Uh, it's not just Nike stores, they, they also sell their shoes through other shoe retailers. It's not just online, it's not just online on the, their nike.com, but they also sell through other partners. They also sell through, they have channels like social, they have such channels like email and SMS. So where our work with Nike specifically deals with uh, running shoes and promoting an, an SMS as a channel of sales. So we help Nike drive the sale of running shoes uh, through the, their SMS uh, channel. So mm-hmm. when when Nike launches a new shoe, like the Epic React or name whatever running shoe, um, that's that's announced. You know, typically, uh, you know, Nike being a great brand, when they announce a shoe, there's obviously a lot of people who are interested. Uh, you might have seen or heard of people when when new shoes are launched. You know, people wait in line in front of the Nike store at midnight and, you know, and there's a long line because they won't really want that Air Jordan or Air Force One or whatever, right? Yeah. Well, that's one way people can uh, uh, get that shoe, right? That's that's one right. way is I'm just gonna wait it. Uh, older, busier people like me might not wanna do that even though we might want sh- those shoes. So what, what do they, what solution do I have? Uh, one solution is, you know, when they announce these shoes, um, we, we offered us, we created a solution where there's a landing page where they announce the shoe where they can put in their phone number, where um, when they'll be the first to get the text message when that shoe, it's like sort of a pre, pre-notification. pre You can't buy it, pre-order it, but it's like, hey, here's the mm-hmm. shoe, the, the Epic React 2, blah, 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 Air Force One, whatever. And if you like this shoe, put in your phone number. As soon as it, it's available for sale, we'll let you know. And then as soon as it comes out, you know, we, using Twilio, you just blast, uh, you know, they do a massive SMS blast. So you're the first one to get the text message. You click on the link, you get taken to their mobile web e-commerce, buy. I don't have to wait in line. Everybody's happy. So that's, that's right. uh, the work that we did for Nike. 
And how do you compare that working with a smaller startup? What's your favorite type of client? Is it a yeah. team of five people or is it a huge enterprise like Nike or Google or something like that? Yeah, uh, they're, they're cool for all different sort of reasons. Um, I, you know, I do like working with innovative startups that have new ideas. Um, I think, you know, everybody knows Nike, uh, right? Like sometimes, you know, your parents and your friends, they who are not in tech, they don't always kind of get what you're doing, right? Um, right. Uh, one of our colleagues at work, you know, when, when we got the Nike job, uh, many people at our company, you know, they, they told their parents one, right? Or they told their brothers or sisters and like people kind of get it, right? Whereas when you right. work on this weird crypto thing or some sort of yeah. AI startup, like they have no idea what you're talking about. But right. hey, we help Nike sell more shoes through SMS, right? And they've right. seen and they know the shoe they're talking you're talking about, the Epic React or you know, the Air Force One or the Jordan, New Jordan, like they can relate to that. And uh, right. you know, that 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 recognition that being able to relate uh, people really it resonated with our people when, you know, when we, when we got the Nike, that Nike work. Yeah. So they're valuable for different reasons or cool for different reasons. <laughs> I understand. Nice. Um, you've been a long-term, uh, a long-time partner with firms like Adobe and Twilio. Uh, tell me about that. How does it feel working with them? You're part of the ecosystem. Does it help? How much value does it bring to an agency? being already situated in a place where everything is happening. What's your take on this? Yeah, uh, so Impeccable has a decent brand, but it's a small company, right? We're a boutique agency, very much so. Uh, actually, the Nike work that we got was introduced to by Twilio. You know, the, the work mm -hmm. really was around SMS, and, you know, and Nike was using Twilio already. Um, if you can imagine, Right, like if, if I were to go as a small agency trying to pitch Nike, I would have to spend a lot of effort trying to convince this global multinational on why they should work with this boutique agency versus something like a Razorfish or Sapien or IDEO or name whatever global agency, right? Uh, but when you have an expertise around a certain product that, that they use, uh, for example, like Twilio or Adobe Technologies, and then you, uh, you have a giant trusted brand like Twilio, which is now like a $57 billion company, says, you know, Nike comes to them and it's like, hey, we, we need help with Twilio SMS. You know, who do you know? Like, can you help us? And Twilio says, go work with Impeccable. They know our products really well. And they've been working with us for five, six years now. You just pass through so many gates, so many blockers, it's much faster. You just get walked in right in through past the lobby and you start right. working, right? The the trust right. factor is the proxy of the trust factor, right? Hey, Twilio trusts you. We, we can trust you. Yeah. Nice. Um, how do you compare? You've worked globally, right? Uh, how do you compare cultures? Uh, we discussed previously uh, the notion of failure, right? And uh, you work with many companies across the world. And uh, also comparing the employees, not only the clients, how do you think the culture of failure 
compares to Silicon Valley to the to the rest of the US and the US to the rest of the world. And uh, do you have any interesting failure stories that you're willing to share publicly? I'm willing to share all my failures publicly. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think Silicon Valley normal, it's okay. It's because if you get it right in Silicon Valley, the, you know, is the VC model, right? You only need to get right once and your right will more than make up for all the wrongs, right? If you make a hundred investments and you make one in Uber, and Uber wins massively, uh, you know, you can pretty much fail on all the other investments and it'll make it up for all the failures. Um, so Silicon Valley is much more forgiving in terms of failure. I don't think that's true outside side of Silicon Valley, even in the US, right? Like th th there's a reason why there's only Silicon Valley and there's not Silicon Valley everywhere in the US, right? Because I think failure is, is much more normalized in, in, in Silicon Valley. Um, yeah, and it might be even more drastic in terms of failure and other cultures, like maybe Asian cultures or maybe certain European cultures. Um, for me, I I have failed a lot in my entrepreneurial journey. Uh, ever since my early days of seeing startups like Hotmail and Yahoo and um, Google and YouTube and, and, and whatnot, uh, I've... I would say I didn't have businesses. I had multiple projects, you know, that uh, I tried. I, I would make stuff. Uh, for example, uh, I made a, when Twitter first came out, I made a Twitter analytics tool. Um, it was bootstrapped. I had sentiment analysis. I had gender. I had regions. I had like tag clouds and all that stuff. I built, you know, designed and built a pretty um, decent social media analytics tool there. Uh, but it wasn't, um, I didn't have sales skills. I didn't have marketing skills. I, I was, you know, I could design and build, right? I, I think I would call that, you know, I, the early days where I thought, oh, if you had a good product, that's all you need to succeed. No, you have to have sales skills. You have to have marketing skills, which I think I've developed later over the years. Um, so those were one failure, and it was uh, massively underfunded compared to some of the VC started funded social media analytics tools that then got mm -hmm. you know, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, they were especially during the dot com when there's a lot of money, right? Like, I was, you know, I won't mention any names, but you know, some of the tools, right? Their account managers were like spending lots of money on their accounts to try to win the accounts. And when I say lots of money, I'm talking about like, you know, like gifts and food and you know, you know what I mean? Like treating them and, and whining and dining. Like I was bootstrapped, I couldn't do any of that. And, you know, like I, my analogy was I, I was taking a knife to a gunfight. I was massively <laughs> underpowered, you know, thinking, oh, my, my product is good and people will buy it because of that. I was very naive. So that's one example. Other examples include, like, I would say toys. I, I, you know, the problem with when you can design and build and you're an introvert and you don't like to talk to customers is you have an idea, you just, your instinct is, oh, let me just build it. It's easier to build it than to talk to people because you're an introvert. You're, you're, you don't feel comfortable talking to people. So it's just easier to build. So you start building um, anything that your heart desires, you know, like a, 
like a like a social network for book readers because I was I read a lot of books so I was like says you could post whatever you're reading well the problem with books is like how you know with with photos you can post 20 photos a day you know right? how many books can you post a day or a week like how many people do how many books do people read a week you know uh, even at the height of when I was reading like I was reading probably two books a, a week you know mm -hmm. uh, which is a lot of reading but that's still like maybe two posts a week, right? <laughs> so, so the the activity on a newsfeed is is pretty shitty, because there's not not a lot of activity. Uh, so, you yeah. know, not a well thought out um, idea, but it was because oh, I love reading books. You know, I didn't see a good social network for reading, you know, and books and and stuff like that. So another failed product. Um, yeah. What what else did I? Um, I did a like sort of like a hot or not for for Twitter. So you, you like I don't know if you know mm -hmm. what hot or not was. Um, mm -hmm. It's no business model, um, but the idea was you know you you log in with your Twitter account and people basically rated you from you know whether you're hot or not um, based on your Twitter profile pic. That's it. That's all they had to. You don't you're not judged by your tweets. Okay. You're just judged by your profile pic. Um, you know, there was a viral loop. Uh, so you log in and you, you know, you start seeing other profiles and then you start judging them. And what happens is because you logged in with your Twitter is you, you, other people would get messages. Like, so if I voted that you were hot, you would get a tweet from the, the, the game. Someone was like, Hey, okay. somebody thought you were hot. Well, of course you want to know. So then you go to the site, you log in and then, and then okay. you might see, other profiles and then you you would start rating people and then they would get messages anyway so so there was a, like a cool viral loop there uh, again no business model how are we going to monetize um and it was just um i didn't know uh i was the mistake there was one no business model um but two also like uh, you know i wasn't intentional about the community so there was starting to become a toxic community started forming uh, as a side effect of, of that um, that app. So then I decided to shut it down. Um, so that's another failure. Uh, and then when I moved to Silicon Valley, um, we, we actually tried to create an enterprise chat tool before Slack. Uh, and um, yeah, this was kind of definitely way, way before Slack. Uh, our mistake was one, it wasn't free. Uh, we wanted to start charging right away. Uh, two, again, I didn't have a network. I didn't have sales skills. I didn't have marketing skills. You know, I, I thought we built a good product. It was very responsive. It had some really cool um, design patterns. Like for example, you could, this is not new today, but say 10, 10, 11, 12 years ago, you know, notifications were pretty static. You, you see a notification and that's it for us. You could do quick replies. Uh, within mm -hmm. the notifications, you got a notification and it was a quick answer. You have maybe some suggestions like yes, no, okay. That, that's like a very common thing now in even email replies in Gmail, but, but back then that was cool. Uh, but again, you know, I think we, it took me a while to learn that there are multiple things that need to happen in order to have a successful business. And it's not just product. Product is one piece, having a great product, right. great. You know, how, how's the go-to market? How are you gonna get customers? How do you, you know, what is the pricing model? How does, what's the strategy? Is it freemium, is it not? You know, yeah. So all those other things needed to also, you know, 
I'd, I needed to either have co-founders who had those skills or I needed to develop those skills. Yeah, many people think that building is all there is. Well, actually, it's probably hardly 10%, right? A lot of my friends are like, oh, if only, if only I had coding skills, I would probably create the new <laughs> Facebook. And I always reply, well, maybe, but actually, it's very yeah. likely that coding skills is the least of what you need. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Nice. Uh, speaking about risk and failure and success, uh, many agency founders like me and like you and like, uh, like many agency founders, they try to also grow uh, their own products inside of their agency. Like in my opinion, bootstrapping a successful product uh, inside an agency, it's like as hard as it gets, right? I know you also had a couple of attempts. Maybe you have something in the works right now. How do you juggle these two initiatives? Uh, well, right now, right at this moment, my opinion is it's very hard, if not impossible, to try to incubate a product within an agency. Um, one, it's a matter of focus, right? You cannot be, and then you have some sort of internal conflict, right? Like you, you make money from billing billable projects and then you take right. away those resources to try to build a build a product Two, it's focus three it's it's the dna of people you may think that hey i have designers i have engineers but service providers and agency people like the people who are drawn to agencies they like variety they like working mm -hmm. on multiple things you know like they're like me i, I like variety i like multiple things i like like if I had to work on the same thing for 20 years, maybe I'll get really bored. <laughs> um, right. So the moment you have an agency, like people come to an agency expecting to work on many things. Uh, mm -hmm. People who go to product companies expect to work on that one product. So, so the DNA of the people you attract are I think very different, even though the hard skills of engineering and design are, you say, oh, they're, these are the same people, but the, they're, the mindset is very different. Um, so that's, that's one realization that I had, uh, and then also focus, you know, it's, it's hard to focus and, and unless you can dedicate like a dedicated, the one, co the companies that I've seen who can do this are, they carve out a separate team and they don't, mm -hmm. they don't intermingle and to, that creates focus. So like basically the agency funds this other team, but if you try to do it, like Hey, Mitya, today you work on this. And then when you don't have a client, maybe work on a product, the context from shifting, a bench. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. From a bench. It, it's I've tried it for eight years and it hasn't worked for me. That's, that's just my personal opinion based on my own experience. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do, do you still have any ideas, any product you'd <laughs> like to in, try to incubate or one way or the other? I mean, for a question, uh, if I had you, any you ideas now. Uh, there, yeah. I, I, I no longer aspire to try to do it within the core agency. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, I know that you're a mentor with Techstars and 500 startups. Uh, tell me about that experience and does it somehow like, is it somehow connected with your 
business with Impeccable or it's two completely separate initiatives? Yeah. And uh, is it more of a hobby thing for you or it's also sort of a line of business? It's not a line of business. Indirectly. Yeah, no, no. Um, maybe in the beginning, I thought that that might have been a feeder, like, hey, if I invest time and these companies get funded, the yeah. cycle for that, you know, well, one, startups fail. So like, yeah, you might help 10 tech star startups, but nine out of 10 will fail. People will just go, you know, it's the the, the investment is too way too long, not, not immediate. Mm -hmm. um, I did it more for a couple of reasons. One, to plug myself into startups in, in the Valley. Uh, mm -hmm. Two, you know, I, I had a useful skill, right? Uh, design and product. So... I, I was a product and design mentor. I would say now I'm more of an absentee mentor, you know, like I was my mentor in name only. But uh, for a while, what I would do is once a month, I would carve out a, you know, an afternoon or, or actually it was a morning. And I would say, hey, you know, I, I'd go to the, I'd go to, you know, 500 startups, you know, once, once a month in the morning and people can book an hour with me you know, and, and it's four hours. And if somebody, if another group wants to buy me lunch, then it's five hours, you know? Uh, so, so once a month I would kind of volunteer and, and people would come, startups would come to me and show, show, you know, run, run the product by me and just check what the user flow and get my advice on that or the UX, whatever. Um, so for me, it was more of a hobby, fun, get exposure, uh, later on, you know, maybe it kind of turned into like, you know, Hey, maybe a potential early angel investment opportunity. If I kind of see that this is cool and something I want to be involved in or be an advisor, uh, you know, these are like lottery tickets, you know, I haven't like, like my life hasn't fundamentally changed. Cause I, I picked like, you know, like I had a, a win. I, I can't say that. So it's more of a fun thing, you know, and, and my, it's again, like, if you want to do this to see if you can, you know, it's, it's literally like the same thing as, Oh, go and buy, a lottery ticket. Actually, the lottery ticket is less work. <laughs> <laughs> and higher probability, maybe. <laughs> probably, probably, yeah. Cool, cool. Uh, speaking from my experience again, like for me, when I work with clients and my agency is also kind of design centric, uh, a lot of clients, and I share this concern, are always very worried about the importance of being submerged in a culture, in the culture code, right? When it comes to especially design work, coding, not so much, but design work, I mean, products across the world and habits of people are very different. Uh, how do you think important that is to be submerged into the culture or a subculture, right? And uh, how do you compare working with a client in, uh, in the US versus working in the, uh, with a client, for example, in Thailand, right? In terms of culture code, how important it is to be submersion one? I think it's very important. This is the reason why consulting firms like Accenture have offices all around the world or like agencies like Fjord or, you know, name any big consultancy, they have offices around the world because the culture doesn't translate, you know. When, when we first started working in Thailand uh, a couple of years back, uh, it's because we had, well, one, I'm Thai. Uh, we had a few resources in Thailand. So we understood the culture uh, and definitely the cultures are different. Um, you know, I think in Thai culture, it's a more hands-on face-to-face culture. 
I have found in Silicon Valley and, and certain companies in the US that they uh, are completely fine with, if you have the expertise, they're completely fine with a remote um, uh, working relationship. For example, mm -hmm. like at one point, one of our biggest clients, I noticed like I had never met them and they're our biggest, like we've only met them like this, but I've never physically right. met them. Um, that would never happen in Thailand. Like they would want to meet mm -hmm. you. They want you to come. They want you to like maybe sometimes take them out to lunch or dinner a bit, you know, like some social, like they, they have to feel like they're your friend, you're their friend uh, for them to do business together. That's Thai culture, you know, kind of a, a more relationship heavy uh, you know, they feel like they need to be taken care of, you know, that's the culture. Uh, whereas in, in the U S it's more of a, you know, kind of, uh, in a sense, it's more meritocratic in the sense that if you can do the work, they don't care where you are. Um, yeah. And, and that may be mostly true for the tech industry, right? I don't know if it spans other industries because I, you know, we, we work mostly in tech. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and speaking of failure, um, you know, going back to failure, we actually pulled back uh, and we, we, we are no longer, we try to build some business in Thailand, um, but we, we are no longer actively, we have teams in Thailand, but they only work on our US clients. We, we actually pulled mm -hmm. back on the business development and, and it was just too hard and, and focus, you know, it's hard to focus on two different regions um, without some serious de dedication, yeah. With the pandemic right now, uh, all the companies, at least in the tech world, all the companies are remote anyway, right? So speaking about remote, like now everybody is remote anyway. Yeah. So most of my clients have no idea where I am. I have no idea where they are. Previously, we would meet a couple times a year. Now it hasn't happened in a year and probably not gonna happen at least for a year more. Do you think this distributed, new distributed world, do you think it brings more demand for agency work now that it's basically doesn't matter if you're in the same office or not? Or do you think it's uh, gonna be a detrimental factor when it comes to agency business? I think uh, companies are realizing digital, you know, remote work is, is okay now, now that they've had to do it. Uh, we, we were mostly remote anyway, so we didn't have an, we had one office in Silicon Valley, but 80% of our team was remote. So when COVID happened and people had to work from home for most people, their life at impeccable didn't change. They were already working from home. Uh, for me, it changed a lot because I was in the Bay area, um, on a given week, a couple times a week, you might find me driving up and down the Bay, you know, visiting Google, visiting whatever tech company, because I, I, I was that face-to-face -face relationship. Um, the funny thing, it was like, I thought that's what I had to do, right? Like, this, I, I just like, this is what salespeople do. They, they see, they go to their clients and they create a relationship. They walk the halls, they do this and that, and, you know, you have a key card. If you go to that client enough, that was kind of cool. Um, yeah. But then when the pandemic happened and I never didn't see anyone, and business remained the same, you're like, then I started <laughs> questioning my assumptions. Like, you know, maybe I don't need to do this. You know, like right. I always just assumed that this was how business was needed and I needed to do this. I needed to drive up and down, spend many hours in traffic. I needed to fly here and there to meet with customers. 
and then this thing happened and I didn't need to do any of that. And business is the same. It's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Uh, so that's why I decided to move uh, back to Illinois, which is where I'm from after moving from Thailand. Because uh, I have some family here, a lot of friends here. Yeah, yeah. So it's definitely changed. Do you think the world should, or do you think, like, do you expect, do you anticipate the world got, coming back to more physical presence post COVID? You know, now that the yeah. vaccination is going on, we can probably already think about post COVID world. Do you think it will be beneficial? I think there's always benefit in meeting face-to-face, -face, but I think there's more of a now employees and employers realize that people can get work done at home. And in, in some ways, like some people want an office environment, but some people also want to work from home. And, and I think there's a happy medium. So I think like headquarters, like where you work at an office five days a week, I think that is that assumption to be productive. I think that assumption is being questioned. I think there's going to be some sort of blend because there is value in collaborating in face-to-face -face and getting that work done more efficiently. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also time when you just need boxed time to get your work done and, and that can be done at home. Um, for me, uh, pers I, I pack in my days are what may, way more productive. Like sometimes now I don't even if I don't block out time for lunch, I just have back-to-back -back Zoom calls for like eight, nine hours a day, which is exceedingly exhausting. Whereas like if I was in Silicon Valley, you know, I if I have to drive to Google, you know, or whatever, I might have an hour and a half where I'm just in the car, you know, and I, yeah. I have that time to think, but actually that's, you know, uh, and, and time to, to think about other things, but it's not a, stuck in a meeting. Whereas now I have none of those breaks or times and um, it's all packed tightly packed in <laughs> so it's very right. different yeah um yeah uh do you think the world is coming back to like the previous way of working or do you think it's going to be a mixed approach i think the world has like covid has accelerated digital transformation more than any cio or cto could ever do themselves like it's just forced yeah it's the Force universal the cio yeah, yeah yeah it's like the world is now different uh and even for us we're we're now 100 percent remote and i don't think i'll ever have an office we'll we'll have once we can get together again what i'd like to do is every now and then have get togethers where we fly in the whole company and hang out for a week or so and do that a couple times a year um you know we'll still if conferences do come back, we'll, we'll, we might fly to those conferences. You know, uh, we, we like to, in the past, like to kick off projects by flying to the customer so that they meet us face-to-face. -face. We do that initial bonding, you know, on the, hey, you, your team members, we're going to work on you, uh, work mm -hmm. with you so that they, uh, yeah, during important milestones, we, we like that face-to-face -face meeting. Um, so we'll still do that when it's, and it's able, we're able to do that again. Uh, my next question is about scale. Like, uh, I know that some people prefer to keep their agencies small and uh, to keep a boutique approach, right? Uh, however, like, do you think, like, realistically, how big a boutique agency can grow while still being boutique, while still 
paying not turning itself into a faceless enterprise so to speak <laughs> uh well i actually have a great podcast episode on my what is ux podcast uh about scaling an agency so fjord which is a uh innovation and design agency they they scaled from 50 people to like over 1400 um mm -hmm. globally and um so that it's possible and and companies like accenture or any other consultancies at some point were really small and they scaled to a global so it really depends on what that person wants or the partners and the founders want uh it's possible i think it's really the person i also know a friend who had a 200 person consultancy dev shop and he he was miserable and he ended up selling his team or company to microsoft and then he started another consultancy and now it's less than 20 people he just wants he won't grow you know if he gets more work than he can handle he just says no because he wants okay. that small feeling um so he, he won't go to 200 again ever again you know he, he's kind of been there and that was not what he made him happy so i think it's sort of a it's a personal choice what about you how do you see impeccable between this those two like kind of extreme yeah. examples well, I have no aspirations to be an Accenture. I think that's way too big. <laughs> but do we see ourselves growing? Yes. Um, we 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 are very careful about growth because we we want to preserve. We want to grow, but not at the cost of culture. We like our culture. Mm -hmm. So you know, if you grow, like let's say you're ten people, if you add five people really fast, that's five new people who don't necessarily may not have developed your culture yet, and that culture is going to change. So if we're at yeah. say 10 people, maybe we're comfortable letting one person in at a time so that we kind of surround them with our culture and they, they kind of develop, you know, more like our culture. But if you double in size, you're going to have a really fast change in culture. So, so we want to grow while maintaining our culture. So we will only do so um, as long as we can achieve that. Yeah. So we do it slower. Yeah. What's your advice for young agency founders? Uh, don't start one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's hard That's work, you know, one. it's, it's a, it yeah, is. the obvious one is like, you know, it, I, I, I try to scare them away because it's a lot of work, right? There's easier if they think that this is a good way to make money, there's so much easier ways to make money. But if I haven't scared them away, I think be very intentful about what you want to be and how you want to, you know, because like for me, I never really, I wasn't, I never planned anything. I just kind of do it. And, and then sometimes because of that, uh, I ended up paying for it, you know, but um, uh, like, for example, you know, we, we have teams in Thailand, Vietnam, and India, and then the US, that's like a, mm -hmm. that's really difficult on both sides. Uh, you know, for example, another agency owner that I know, like they, they, they have their agency in Chicago, and then they also have the other teams, uh, kind of in the same time zone, just in South America. So mm -hmm. they never have a change in time zone. Like the whole team is literally in the same time zone. So they never have the pain that we have mm -hmm. because I didn't think about it. You know, that was not a factor, you know? <laughs> so, so those are like just decisions like that can have an impact, right? Like, 
on 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 your your company and and you know what what people go through yeah interesting uh time for a blitz okay i ask you a simple question you can reply short yeah. uh, short or you can give a detailed reply uh your favorite uh tech ceo is as sounding cliche probably elon musk that guy is changing you know he thinks more about just making money right <laughs> he's very inspirational um yeah hard to beat him on that yes yeah. uh you mentioned you read a lot uh and one of your startups was about books what's your favorite book on business or you can name a couple yeah uh one of the ones that favorite uh founders at work by jessica livingston she was one of the co-founders mm -hmm. of y, y combinator uh, mm -hmm. each chapter is about a different startup, you know, like from Hotmail to like some, you know, old, like WordStar or, you know, older startups. So yeah, that one. Okay. Uh, lastly, if it wasn't impeccable, what would it be? What's your second passion, mm -hmm. so to speak? Well, it's still startup. So I'd probably maybe start a startup or maybe join a startup. It's one of those. Yeah. Being somehow involved in startups, yeah. Awesome, thank you, Peck. It was uh, fantastic uh, with us. Was today was uh, Peck Fung Pet, uh, founder of Impeccable. Uh, Peck, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Mitya. Great, great to be here. Thank you. Have a nice day. Thank you. All right.